Good morning. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Matthew 24, verse 5. Studies and Confession, taught by Jared in the auditorium at 9.30 a.m., a wonderful insight on our doctrinal beliefs, and I encourage everybody to come. Tonight we continue our summer video series on the history of the Reformation, 6 p.m., Bring finger foods. SGBA camp begins this week. Pray for our staff and our campers. Men's Bible study, Tuesdays, 10 a.m. at McLeod's home. Our prayer service on Wednesday night will be held at Camp Lael in support of our camp. And that's at 6... 630. 6.30. It says 7 in the bowl. Right, 630, uh, carpool if possible. We would like to make a church directory. Uh, we've been talking about this for, oh, I don't know, 30 years. <laughs> we need to, to get this thing done. So uh, see George on, on all the pertinent information. And we uh, extend our thanks to George and to Doug for teaching while Pastor was away. New acts and facts. Uh, new free grace broadcasters are all in the foyer table. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Matthew 24, verse 4 through 25. That would be page 1538 in the Pew Bible. Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service in prayer? Brother Ed Riffle, would you lead us in prayer, please?
please be seated. We have a special presentation at this time. Could I have Rachel come forward? Rachel is our graduate this year. Hi, honey. I can hug her. She's fine. <laughs> we want to present you with this Bible. I know you're going to make good use of it. It's a study Bible. Uh, study Bibles are neat because they have all kinds of footnotes in there. They have articles that are written in there by good theologians and um, lots of cross-references. And that's the important thing about a study Bible is that you can look up one text and it will shoot you to three or four others that say the same thing in a, in a little different way. And uh, I know you're going to make good use of the study Bible. And this is providential because today starts camp. And what they do at camp is what? Study the Bible. Lots of things from Brother Dean Burge. So wonderful. So the church is presenting this to you and congratulating you on 12 years of hard education. <laughs> we keep pushing. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? So whatever the Lord has for her, uh, we're uh, praying that his bless, blessing upon her. Let's pray together to give thanks. Thank you, Lord, for the uh, opportunity to see Rachel come to know Christ and also, Lord, to complete uh, 12 years of education. We ask, Lord, that you'll continue to bless her. The great education is in her hands. It's in the book of books. It's in the Bible, the Word of God, where you know, Solomon talks that that's what makes him wise. That's what made him wise. That he, he talks about, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, because evil days are coming. They're, in fact, all around us. And uh, it's the Bible that keeps us true to the word of God. We can believe when God speaks. We can't always believe when men speak. So we thank you, Lord, for her life, her testimony. We pray, Lord, that you'll make good use of the study Bible. And we're so happy uh, to be part of her graduation. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please take your Brown hymnal, 466. In the Brown, and let's stand as we sing, please. 466 in the Brown.
like that song. Uh, what is it? 569. 569. Thank you. 569. Yeah, those who can stand should probably begin. And uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now, even now is already in the world. 
you, dear children, are from God and have come, have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Uh, okay. God bless his word. Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, before our third hymn, I just wanted to take a moment as the camp director to speak to you about our needs for camp this week. Um, we know it's camp week because everything leading up to this day has been terrible. Um, even today, Laura is uh, at the hospital with her mom. Okay? And some people say, well, if you're looking for the bad things, they seem to happen more often. Well, most of these things that happen to us during the week leading up to camp and during camp, we're not looking for. They just happen to us. Um, so pray for Laura and for her mom um, because, let me tell you, Laura is a tireless worker. Uh, when it comes to camp, she does a lot of the work and she's being hit today pretty hard. Um, other things that go on, we have had, all, I'm not going to go into the details, but the staff members for camp have already been dealing with things heading into this. Usually, it's because of what's going to happen. Camp is a great time for our kids and the staff. Uh, we learn too, the staff members. Let me encourage you, if you've ever thought about being a counselor or coming up, we have some of our members of our church going to help out during the week. It's a blessing just to be there. Um, and I am, I am encouraged by the messages uh, that Pastor Dean will bring. And I'm, I'm assuming that because of what the, the subject is this year, which is cross-culture, or I should say counter-culture Christians, our three C's, that we're about to go into a hard week. So I'm asking for prayer, especially from our church, because a lot of the workers for camp come right out of our church. And uh, I'm praying for, the, uh, as I'm asking you to pray during this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, we have Bible class in the morning, and we have chapel in the evening, and devotions at night. And they're all dealing with, we're gonna deal with the Beatitudes. You have heard this, but I tell you this, okay? And how we have a mandate from Christ to be, to, to change and to repent and to think differently. So um, things that we're also going to ask for physically, protection. God has granted us very good years the last couple of years, but in years past we've had concussions, trips to the hospital, broken limbs, those things, dehydration. I've gone to the hospital. Things like that have happened. So I'm asking that this week also you remember that part of camp, not just the spiritual aspect of it, but the protection would happen for the kids and for the staff members. Uh, it's a lot of places to walk. We have archery and slingshots this year. Safety out there. Our range master is Phil and he's going to be uh, taking care of that. Safety for him too. <laughs> Let me show you how to put that arrow in the, in the bow, not in the person. Uh, so those kind of things we're looking for. And always waterfront is always a concern. And we've had a couple scares beforehand where a kid has gotten out and gone somewhere and we're like doing a head count. They're not there. And we're freaking out at that moment. So those are things to think about. Pray also for the camp's staff. Not SGBA staff, but Camp Lael staff. Um, they're running their own camp too, but it, there are things that happen that they're frustrated with too. Um, but overall, we're asking God to either save sinners, and we have many. This is, a, this is a backyard mission field for our church too. Lots of kids that come to this don't know Christ. So that's number one. Number two, or if they do know Christ, that they are challenged and, and to grow and grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? We'll hope to see you on Wednesday night at 6.30 for a very different Wednesday night service. It'll be hot. We're going to try our best to, to cool it off there as best we can. There's been steps taken to make it better this year if you were there last year. Okay, 471 in the hymnal. I'll, I'll, I'll let you sit down for this one. You've been standing quite a bit. 471. Oh, oh, oh. 
Our scripture text this morning is 1 John 4. In our last study, we learned just how crippling a guilty conscience can be as we try to live the Christian life. There are masters of guilt which want to inhibit any real progress for the kingdom of Christ by keeping us guilt-ridden and depressed about our sin and our failures. Our own conscience or our own hearts is one of these masters of guilt because we often do not live up to what we know to be right. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he maligns motives when he cannot malign good behavior. Another master of guilt. The world of unbelievers is a guilt master when it slanders our reputation, and Peter says, speaks maliciously against our good behavior, using his words from 1 Peter 3 and verse 16. That's what the world does. It speaks maliciously against our good behavior. Now in all these areas, Christ is the master of a cleared conscience. By defeating the world, by defeating Satan, and cleansing us of the sins which bring guilt in our hearts and minds. God is greater than our hearts, John says. Our hearts might condemn us, but God is greater. We look to his forgiveness and cleansing power to set us free in heart and to live a victorious life for God. Not a perfect life, but a victorious life. The perfection belongs to Jesus, and we're happy to have it so because by his grace we participate in his righteousness through faith. Jesus gets the glory we receive the benefits. Can't beat that. Well, today we come to chapter 4 of 1 John, which is beginning to deal with false preachers and lying spirits. As we come, let's ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, send your Spirit upon us to understand about false spirits and false prophets. We pray this because we need discernment, and we don't always have discernment. Sometimes we are hoodwinked by what is said or done in the Christian world, 
and it's not till maybe months or years later that we find out that so-and-so was a false prophet and spoke lies. But by that time, the damage is done. So we're asking, Lord, for your preventive grace, that you will prevent the lawless one from overtaking our heart and our minds to make us a child of his. We ask that the Holy Spirit would overtake our heart and minds and keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ and our ears attached to the word of God that we might indeed be victorious over the enemies of our souls. And we thank you that that is a promise in Scripture. We claim it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject, 1 John 4, deals with false preachers and lying spirits, and that's what our message is about today. John begins with two imperatives in this text. The first imperative is, do not be gullible. It's in your bulletin outline. Do not be gullible. But gullible is what many Christians are. So we ask the question, what is gullibility? To be gullible, and I'm just using a, a dictionary definition here. To be gullible is to be easily fooled, cheated, or deceived. The word easily it goes with all of those nouns. Easily fooled, easily cheated, easily deceived. The word itself comes from an old French word, goulet, which in turn comes from a Latin word, gula, meaning throat. So, gullet. You get the idea? Gullet. In either case, it is the sense of someone who will swallow anything that's thrown at them. That's why we say they're gullet. <laughs> they're gullible. They'll just eat anything. To be callable is to be in a state opposite of what John is warning in this text. John says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But a gullible person does believe every spirit. If someone says it, they believe it. There isn't a skeptical bone in their body, so that's the way they are. I have to say that these are Christian people whose whole lives as a believer is characterized by, well, by believing. Uh, but they are people of faith, so believing is what they do. And believing is what they advocate that we all do. But brethren, that's a blind faith. It is a blind faith. It is an uninformed faith. It is a faith which accepts anything and everything without question, without discrimination, without discernment. And God has never called us to that. You say, well, wait a minute, isn't that what belief in God is all about? It's a, it's a, a blind faith. Well, the world would have us believe that. By blind faith, uh, they mean raw faith or... Bare faith, I'm trying to get it for our understanding. Faith which is ill-conceived as far as they are concerned. Even illogical, it's unreasonable, you just trust. Well, let me tell you, if you think that that is what biblical faith is, you are quite mistaken. Quite mistaken. God, the author of knowledge and wisdom, including mathematics, which is very precise, and logical sequencing does not call us to an unreasonable, illogical, blind trust in Him. And most assuredly, not to a blind faith in preachers and preaching and pulpit orators. Because we're individual priesthood as, as believers, as the scripture teaches. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, 
They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 1 verse 18. This is an appeal to right judgment if ever I heard one. The Hebrew word means to decide, to argue, to justify, to reprove, or to prove again. And so God is coming us, coming to us, and he's saying, prove my words. Don't just, you know, accept it on fiat. Prove my words. Test the conclusions. Argue your way through all the conundrums that you see. And in context, it is the power of God to save which is at the fore. He's addressing Jerusalem and its inhabitants. See how the faithful city has become a harlot, he says. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. I will remove all of your iniquities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. And afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. How fitting then to say, as God does say, Come now, and let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God says he'll do it. Yes, he can do it. He will do it. How reasonable to have faith in the promises of the omnipotent God. Who can forget the great inquisition God held with Job out of the storm because of Job's challenge? This was Job's challenge. Oh, if only I knew where to find him. He's speaking of God. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I, I, I would state my case before him and fill my, my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Job 23, verses 3 through 5. Sounds rather arrogant, doesn't it? Well, it was very arrogant. <laughs> and so God came to Job in the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Hmm. Who's this babbling idiot that's addressing me? <coughs> As though I were responsible to answer to him for what I do or what I say. He goes on. <clears throat> Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you will answer me. Wow. Think about that. Job 38, verse 2 and 3. And for the next, the next four chapters, Job is called on the carpet for his arrogance, and he is bombarded with a barrage of unanswerable questions so full of the wisdom and the majesty of God that we are told Job answered, here it is, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He's talking about his spiritual eyes. Therefore, here's his conclusion, I despise Myself, I repent in dust and ashes. Chapter 42, verse 5 and 6. What's going on here is that God used knowledge and wisdom to bring Job to the place of humility and faith. So ours is an intelligent faith. It is not a mystical, ooh, wishful faith. God appeals to us through our intellect, and in so doing, he argues for a reasonable faith in his commands, his promises, his threats, 
and yes, his overtures of mercy. In the New Testament, the apostles likewise presented a gospel to sinners. And when doing so, they never called men to blind faith in God. At Thessalonica, Paul found a Jewish synagogue. And Luke tells us, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Acts 17, verse 2 and 3. Same chapter, different city, this time Athens. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, that got him an invitation to the Areopagus, the think tank on top of Mars Hill, to which the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Acts 17, verse 21. And there Paul showed the reasonableness of judgment based upon the doctrine of the resurrected Jesus, the judge to come. You think he's dead and gone, Paul says. He's, he's dead, but he's been resurrected to life. And since he's a living Savior, he's coming back to judge you. You need to listen to what I have to say. Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. So he is affirming that there's a reason for why we believe what we do. There is thought behind our faith and knowledge and purpose, not belief that's helter-skelter. And not belief for belief's sake. Certainly not fideism. Fideism is uh, faith in faith. Well, I have faith that. So, you might have faith in faith, but that'll get you nowhere. The very object of our faith is real and tangible. Our God has substance and genuality and reality, he's not a figment of our imagination. And so the bottom line here is that we are to know of what the faith consists. And in our ascent, and I'm using faith now as a verb, in our ascent, we are to be discriminating. We're not to give a blanket endorsement to every preacher or message which espouses the words faith, God, Jesus, salvation, eternal life, peace. Our head, our minds are to be guarded with the helmet of salvation. Acts 6, Ephesians 6 verse 17, which Paul calls the hope or the assurance of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. I don't think it coincidental that in the Ephesians passage, the helmet of salvation is listed in the text sequentially to the shield of faith in the previous verse by which we extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, lies, deception, snares, and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, listed in the posterior verses. So we've got the helmet of salvation, and we have the sword of the Spirit, so the helmet of salvation is protection for the mind with the knowledge of salvation and it's sandwiched between faith and the word of God or scriptures which demonstrates that faith is in concord with reason and the scriptures are the basis for shoring up and protecting the mind. This is our defensive offensive armor which is employed against the strategies of the evil one as he utilizes false prophets 
toting lying doctrines in an attempt to convince God's people, as he did with our first parents, to believe and act upon his lie. Paul expressed this possibility in writing to the Corinthian church, and he wrote, he says, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. In other words, Satan uses his own hell-bent servants to do this trickery. And this actually occurred at the church in Antioch, where men came from Jerusalem teaching, I quote, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Acts 15, verse 1. And the reply sent to the brethren from the Jerusalem council was this. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturb you, troubling your minds by what they said. Acts 15, verse 24. How important it is that we have our minds shored up on one side with faith in the God of whom we have been taught, and on the other side with God's word, the source of all things true and godly. This will curb gullibility. We'll have a bedrock of truth upon which to stand and through which we may filter out the lies and the deceptions. But unless you're standing on the rock of God's word, then you're on quicksand. And if you're on quicksand, there will be no sooner foundation when all of the false teachers come down the pike and they're already here and they have been here for centuries. And God's people have bamboozled by false teachers for centuries, and still are. So the first imperative that John gives in this text, look, don't be gullible. Don't believe everybody that uses God words and has a Bible in their hand and so forth. Be discerning. The second imperative in our text, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Oh, test them? Yeah, you should test them. First, don't believe everything you hear preachers say. And second, test the spirit behind the message. In other words, be discriminating. Show discernment. Apply some filters so that what you hear will remove, from the filters you will remove the lies, or at least you're going to recognize them as lies. Now, before we examine the criteria to be used for such a test, note that John does not see anything wrong with being skeptical of some of the things being preached or said in the name of God. Just because a man has his degree in theology and carries the ordination, a title of Reverend so-and-so, or has his degree as Dr. so-and-so, is no justification for setting your thinking cap aside and sitting there like a giant sponge just soaking in all of the God talk as though you were listening to one empowered by the Spirit of God. There are other spirits. And that's John's point in this text. There is the spirit of Antichrist, verse 3. So are they going to give you a right view of Christ if they're anti? Christ? Think about that. What you have heard is coming, and even now, already is in the world, says John. Now, in his day. There's another spirit. There's the spirit of the world mentioned in verse 4, which produces its own apostles, verse 5. They are from the world, says John. Therefore, they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Hello, big clue here. Who's in the audience of these preachers? 
Who's buying their books? Who's supporting their ministries? Who's paying their bills? Who's praising and promoting Mr. So-and-so? John says, the world listens to them. Hmm. This is the same world, by the way, that John referenced in chapter 2 and verse 15 when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. <coughs> John is drawing a sharp line in the sand. He's saying, either or. If anyone loves the world, <coughs> the love of the Father's not in him. That's a pretty sharp line, don't you think? Either or. So I asked, well, okay. Why is there no middle ground? Why is there not a neutral playing field? Because these teachers, verse 5, speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world is listening to them. And in contrast, Sean asserts, verse 5, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Falsehood meaning falsehood found in the worldly speakers. And by the us here, I believe... John is referencing the apostles of Christ, of which John alone is still alive and by extension to us who know, believe, and preach apostolic doctrine. When you see a church service that is packed by thousands of people from the world, People who have never read on their own so much as one chapter of the Bible in their life. People who are godless and profane and immoral in their lifestyle outside of that church service. People whose religion consists of incantations and canned prayers and decorum unbefitting to sobriety and orderliness. People who are all into their own feel-good, pat-me-on-the-back praise and applause, you can be sure the man in the pulpit is not preaching apostolic doctrine. And the man in the pew isn't there to listen to a message born of the Spirit of God. And this is why John says, Folks, my, my brethren, you must test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You don't just assume that. You put them through the test. Now what's the reason for the exhortation? Don't be gullible. Test the spirits. Why, John, are you saying that? Verse 1, the latter part. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I would say it this way. There are more false preachers than there are true preachers. Now, I don't think John is suggesting <laughs> that a minimal number of liars would exonerate us from keeping our guard up and our armor polished, but rather that the overwhelming majority of false preachers prevalent in our world calls for keen vigilance. I was watching a national uh, 